This is Sunrise, the who, what, when, where, why, and WTF of Florida politics. I'm Rick Flagg reporting from Tallahassee, where we say goodbye to the worst month on record for COVID fatalities in Florida. The health department reported the deaths of 4,806 Floridians in January, shattering the record that was set in August. The governor says we need to vaccinate seniors first because they face the greatest risk, but there's another group that may be just as vulnerable that's been left off, persons with physical or intellectual disabilities. Reporter Jeff Schweers with Gannett Newspaper says hundreds of thousands of Floridians with disabilities and severe medical conditions are not included in the governor's priority vaccination list. Yeah, you've got like 350, 370,000 people who are outside of any institutional treatment facility or any way of getting this vaccine the way things are structured right now. Jeff wrote a story on the problem this weekend. He's our guest today on the Sunrise Interview. As lawmakers gear up for next month's legislative session, they're facing a backlash over a bill to crack down on protesters. During its first committee hearing, House Bill 1 drew dozens of vocal opponents and Republicans are not happy with what they heard. I can say that I've never been more saddened, more ashamed, or more embarrassed for my countrymen, many of whom got up here and began their their testimony by lamenting the fact that they only had one minute to present their thoughts and then proceeded to use their time to call the bill sponsor a racist, my colleagues on this committee Nazis, and try to express their point by using profanity. Hang on, guys. It's going to be a bumpy ride. In the aftermath of the scandal at the Florida Coalition Against Domestic Violence, state lawmakers are looking at other nonprofits that have exclusive deals to act as service providers for the state. Investigators have found more than a dozen nonprofits doing business for the state that appear to have paid too much to the top brass, and the investigation is still in progress. Consider these findings preliminary because some entities may be hiding secret compensation, as we discovered at the Florida Coalition Against Domestic Violence. Clearly, there is much more work to do to stop the excess compensation of Florida's private, se- private sector service partners. The governor may have to find a new chief of staff. Shane Strum is a finalist for CEO of Broward Health, which pays about five times as much as he makes working for Ron DeSantis. We'll also check out your calendar of political events and check in with a Florida man and Florida woman who squared off in an elevator and were both topless. And now the top stories on Sunrise for Monday, February 1st. This is National Freedom Day, commemorating the day in 1865 when President Lincoln signed what would later become the 13th Amendment to abolish slavery. It was on this date in 1964 that the governor of Indiana tried to ban the song Louie Louie for obscenity. But you know, it was just a prank. Young people started a rumor that the song about a lovesick sailor's lament to a bartender named Louie was really all about sex. You had to listen carefully, the rumor went, maybe even play the single at the slower speed of 33 RPMs. But if you did, you'd find that Louie Louie was chock full of smutty lyrics. It was all nonsense, of course, but the FBI spent years and untold amounts of money investigating the rumor. Goodbye and good riddance to the month of January, the deadliest in Florida since the pandemic began. The Department of Health reported 120 more fatalities Sunday and almost 8,700 new cases. Now, the deaths of 4,808 Floridians were reported in total in January. That's 462 more than the old record set in August. Our death toll has reached 26,915. The total number of cases in Florida, 1,721,377. But there is hope that the holiday peak may be over. The numbers of fatalities and new cases have declined over the past two weeks, and more people are being vaccinated. 
Almost 1.4 million Floridians have now received the first dose of the coronavirus vaccine. More than 300,000 people have received the second dose. But there have been problems, of course. Online and phone systems to sign up for vaccination have crashed and burned because of all the people trying to schedule an appointment. And if you're not a senior, it's almost impossible to get a shot, even if you do have a serious medical condition that could mean COVID is a death sentence. Case in point, Floridians with disabilities. They're not on anyone's priorities list. Next up on the Sunrise interview, we'll talk with a reporter who tried to find out why some of the state's most vulnerable citizens are being ignored. The governor's official policy on COVID vaccinations is seniors first, which means if you're 65 and older, you can sign up for a shot, or at least try to. But if you're under 65 with serious health problems, you're SOL. And that includes the 473,000 Floridians with physical or mental disabilities. This matters because disabled persons usually live with a series of health problems, and they're three to four times as likely to die of COVID-19 as the general population. Now, if they live in a group home, there is a chance of getting vaccinated. But 75% of the Floridians with disabilities actually live with a family caregiver. There are no accommodations for them in the governor's executive orders. Joining us now on the Sunrise Interview is Jeff Schweers, a veteran Florida reporter who covers Tallahassee for Gannett newspapers throughout the state. His story highlighting the problem was published over the weekend. You had this plan when when, when they first started giving the vaccine, that, you know, they got the first bunch of doses, it was frontline health care workers, people in long-term care facilities, uh, you know, and any, anybody with an underlying condition. And then uh, by the second or third week, December 23rd, the governor issued an executive order saying 65 and older first, people in nursing homes second, uh, people and people on the front line uh, of health care who are directly in contact with COVID patients, and also people with underlying conditions who, you know, who could get a hospital to convince them, uh, you know, to get a vaccine or, or something to that effect. So the 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 one, there was nothing, you know, mentioned about people with developmental disabilities. And you're talking about a huge bunch of people here, right? Almost half a million in the state. And so they exactly. they're, they're close, left out of the whole vaccination plan. They were. I mean, the draft plan mentions in phase one, which is, you know, what we're talking about here in the first couple of months, uh, where there's a limited supply of the vaccine that uh, people in long-term care facilities could be vaccinated, including staff and residents at the uh, intermediate care facilities for people with developmental disabilities. You know, there's maybe... Um, you know, several thousand, um, you know, 10 to 20,000 at most that are in this kind of an institutional care where the vaccines are coming to these facilities via CVS and Walgreens under a federal contract uh, to, to give the vaccine out. And yet the vast majority um, of people with disabilities don't live in these kind of facilities, do they? They do not. They are uh, the, the study done by the uh, University of Colorado Boulders showed that uh, about 75 percent of the people with developmental disabilities live at home or live in a kind of a supervised independent living setting. Uh, but most 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 of them live you know, with elder parents who are themselves at risk of getting really sick if they get COVID too. So you got situations where, you know, you've got a 75-year-old parent, uh, like I wrote about, who was able to get the vaccine through her 
doctor who got the vaccine from the local hospital, which got it from the health department. Uh, but the 48-year-old daughter couldn't get vaccinated because the doctor said, well, the instructions say we can only give this to people 65 and older. So you know, you've got like 350, 370,000 people uh, who are outside of you know, any institutional treatment facility or, or any way of getting this vaccine or at the way things are structured right now. So they have absolutely no options at this point, even though they have serious, what they call comorbidities. Well, there, yeah, up until Friday, really, there was nothing uh, that addressed people under 65 um, with comorbidities, like you mentioned, underlying medical conditions, serious underlying medical conditions. And the governor's order uses an even more, I I don't know if you want to call it interpretive or vague or hard to interpret, term called extremely vulnerable. So, I mean, the assumption is extremely vulnerable means people who have really serious medical conditions that if they got COVID, they would get a whole lot sicker than you or I would probably wind up hospitalized and even, you know, having a higher risk of dying. In fact, people with developmental disabilities are three to four times more likely to die from COVID if they catch it than, you know, other people in the population. So people under 65 who are developmentally disabled and live at home are kind of in a a little bit of a, a, a limbo here. There's not a, a clear plan or one that's been shown to me after, you know, uh, and I made public records requests uh, that, and have not, and I'm still waiting on a response for those, you know, answers. So, um, I, you know, we will see if hopefully the, the, they might begin addressing that. What I was, uh, so as they have already done Friday, uh, Representative Carl Guillermo Smith tweeted out that, um, he got uh, Jared Moskowitz, the, the, the head of the state's emergency management division, who is really in charge of the logistics of getting this vaccine out to all the other distributors of the vaccine, the providers of the vaccine, you know, the people who are actually going to do the shots in the arm. Uh, they got 28,500 doses to go to 26 hospitals throughout the state um, in order that those hospitals can then vaccinate people under 65 with developmental disabilities. And from talking to Representative Smith, it's it's going to be up to the hospitals to determine who those extremely vulnerable people are who are going to get the vaccine. So it still doesn't necessarily, you know, it doesn't specifically identify people with developmental disabilities are to get these vaccines first or anything. One of the people still waiting is my daughter, Katie, who has Down syndrome and the usual assortment of chronic medical conditions that people with disabilities are prone to experience. Her mom, who is in good health, has already been vaccinated, but we have no idea when Katie, who turns 40 later this month, can get her shots. And she's already had to quarantine four times during the pandemic after people in her immediate circle were exposed to the virus. All we can do now is cross our fingers and hope she shows up on someone's priority list. State lawmakers are back in Tallahassee this week for another round of committee meetings, but we've already discovered the bill that's going to suck most of the oxygen out of the room during the upcoming session. HB1's official title is Combating Public Disorder, but opponents are calling it the DeSantis Censorship and Suppression Bill. 
The governor says he wants to crack down on violent protests. But Representative Michael Grieco, a Democrat from Miami-Dade, says it's a blatant violation of the Constitution. I was recently asked, how can we make this bill better? You can shred it. Let's let's forget about it. Representative Grieco, members of the audience, please. I have asked you for your courtesy and your respect. We have listened to you courteously. I'm asking you to listen to the members courteously and refrain from speaking out or making extraneous noises. Thank you. Representative Grieco, you may continue. Thank you. I'd, I'd like to forget about this bill and how it would trample on the basic rights of Floridians. But you all are in charge. You can run whatever bill you want, and there's not much that I or my colleagues on the blue team can do about it. But just because you can do something doesn't mean that you should. Florida has a lot more than 99 problems, and this bill doesn't solve any of them. People across the political spectrum are angry and dissatisfied with government, and this bill just gives them another reason to feel that way while chilling their desire to speak out. The bill was written in response to the Black Lives Matter protests against police brutality last summer, and Representative Diane Hart, a Democrat from Tampa, says HB1 would actually give more leeway to the cops. I believe law enforcement has tools in place to punish wrongdoers already, and there's no demonstrated need for these changes. This law would disproportionately hurt communities of color trying to exercise their constitutional rights. This gives bad actors in law enforcement and the criminal justice system additional weapons to harm, incarcerate, and kill black and brown Floridians. Most black lawmakers oppose this bill, but Republican Representative Webster Barnaby of Daltona is all for it. God didn't make three races, he made one. It's called the human race. This bill does not attack people of color. We are all God's children. And it's important for us all to be one America. We cannot be three Americas, four Americas. We're one America. This is the United States. What Governor DeSantis and Speaker Sprouls and what the sponsor of this bill wants to do is to ensure that we have public safety. Dr. Martin Luther King marched because he wanted peaceful protest. And we have to protect people who want to protest peacefully and those that do not want to protest, protest peacefully they have to be aware that there is a consequence. Doesn't matter what your color, your skin tone, or your party. If you behave badly, you will be and you should be punished. Supporters of the bill have tried to use last month's coup at the Capitol to justify the new restrictions on protesters. But Representative Patricia Williams, a Democrat from Broward, says House Bill 1 has nothing to do with the MAGA mob. Approximately six months ago in Fort Lauderdale, a group of young adults, 75% of them that was in attendance, was black and brown. They were protesting peacefully. The officers showed up there in riot gear, ready for war. Just three weeks ago, a group of people stormed the Capitol, got past the officers, got inside the Capitol. If that group of people was black and brown, we would still be picking up body bags. Please will maintain order in the committee room. Putting lipstick on a pig is still a pig, no matter what color the lipstick is. Speaking out and speaking up when you see and know things are wrong is a must. 
And then you have Republican Representative Spencer Roach of Lee County, who says he supports freedom of speech, but seemed annoyed that he had to listen to all those complaints. I can say that I've never been more saddened, more shamed, or more embarrassed for my countrymen, many of whom got up here and began their, their testimony by lamenting the fact that they only had one minute to present their thoughts, and then proceeded to use their time to call the bill sponsor a racist, my colleagues on this committee Nazis, and try to express their point by using profanity. If one need evidence of the decline of civil discourse in this country and the state of Florida, one need look no further than the public presentations in this committee today. Members of the public, so those please. I do not want to clear the room. Please show respect. Sounds like the battle over HB1 will be on this year's highlights reel from the legislature. It was big news last year when the Miami Herald revealed that the woman who ran the Florida Coalition Against Domestic Violence had paid herself more than $7 million over a three-year period, using tax money that should have been used to provide services to victims of domestic violence. The coalition had a non-bid contract with the state, and when lawmakers began peeling back the layers of the onion to find out exactly what happened, they also realized there were hundreds of other nonprofits that had similar deals. So the governor's inspector general began investigating to see if any other groups had been padding the pockets of their leaders. State Representative Erin Grawl of Vero Beach chairs the Public Integrity and Elections Committee in the Florida House, and last week she received a copy of the inspector general's report on excessive compensation. The governor's effort surveyed 36 state agencies looking for nonprofit service vendors and grantees who are, one, named in statute as sole source vendors or providers, or two, receive 50% of their total revenues from state and federal tax dollars. This has amounted to a review of over 800 nonprofits that are providing a public-private service. A total of 12 entities have excess compensation per state or federal law. Nine entities are contracted with the Department of Children and Families, including the following. Big Bend Community-Based Care, ChildNet, Citrus Health Network, Community-Based Care of Brevard, Eckerd Youth Alternatives, Embrace Families Community-Based Care, Family Support Services of North Florida, Lakeview Center, Safe Children Coalition Incorporated. Three entities are contracted with the Department of Education, in which the excess compensations were returned to the Office of Early Learning as disallowed costs, including the Early Learning Coalition of Hillsborough County, the Early Learning Coalition of Miami-Dade, Monroe County, and the Children's Forum. Consider these findings preliminary because some entities may be hiding secret compensation, as we discovered at the Florida Coalition Against Domestic Violence. Clearly, there is much more work to do to stop the excess compensation of Florida's private, se private sector service partners. The inspector general's report is preliminary, and investigators say there are still 41 entities with outstanding information regarding their executive compensation. Representative Grawl says the investigations will continue, including the one targeting Tiffany Carr, the former director of the Florida Coalition Against Domestic Violence. She's ensconced in her million-dollar mansion within a gated community in North Carolina and is refusing to cooperate with the investigation or return any of the money. The governor's chief of staff may be headed back to South Florida. Shane Strum is one of three candidates to take over the soon-to-be-vacant job of CEO at Broward Health, which is one of the nation's largest hospital systems. Strum has deep roots in Broward County and was chief operating officer at Memorial Healthcare in Hollywood when Ron DeSantis chose him to be his chief of staff in 2018. Now, his departure would be a big deal for the gov because he has a very close circle of trusted advisors. It's pretty much the governor, the first lady, and the chief of staff who run the office. But you can't blame Strom for being interested. The chief of staff job pays $180,000. The CEO of Broward Health is making more than 900000 
Your calendar of events today at 9.30, Florida International University begins a week-long State of the World 2001 event on Facebook. Today's speakers include former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright and Florida Congressman Ted Deutsch. At 10, the co-leader of the Democratic Caucus, Representative Evan Jenny, holds an online media availability to talk about upcoming issues in the legislature. At 10.30, Congresswoman Debbie Wasserman Schultz and Congressman Ted Deutsch will join with gun safety advocate Fred Gutenberg to discuss sanctions against Marjorie Taylor Greene, the pistol-packing Georgia congresswoman who harassed survivors of the Parkland massacre and claimed the school massacre was staged by the government. Three Tampa Bay lawmakers, Senators Daryl Rousson, Representative Fentrice Driscoll, and Representative Diane Hart, hold an online news conference at 11 to announce legislation about issues relating to housing evictions during the pandemic. At 11.30, Senator Jeff Brandis of St. Pete joins the Florida Healthcare Association, the Florida Hospital Association, the Safety Net Hospital Alliance, and the Florida Medical Association in a news conference to call for COVID-19 liability protections for healthcare providers. The Ocoee Election Day Riots Historical Review and Dedication Committee holds an online meeting at 1 to talk about renaming a state park to recognize victims of the 1920 massacre. At 2.30, the Senate Environment and Natural Resources Committee takes up a bill to rename the Southeast Florida Coral Reef Ecosystem Conservation Area as the Kristen Jacobs Coral Reef Ecosystem Conservation Area. Representative Jacobs was a champion of environmental issues who died of cancer last year. Also at 2.30, the Senate Judiciary Committee takes up a bill by Senator Joe Gruders that allows more people with concealed carry permits to bring guns on property owned, rented, or used by churches, synagogues, or other religious institutions. And at seven, members of the Florida Legislative Black Caucus hold an online town hall to discuss issues related to the COVID-19 pandemic, including mental health effects. Finally today, police in Miami are searching for a Florida man and a Florida woman who squared off in an elevator while both were topless. It happened Thursday, and video from the elevator camera shows a shirtless man walking onto the lift before a woman who was wearing a top but had her breasts exposed attacked him with an unknown object. She hit the guy several times and stuck her foot in the door to keep it from closing while the argument continued. Eventually, the guy raised his fist into a defensive position, and she got in one last shot before leaving. Now, the man did not report this incident to police, but detectives want to speak to him anyway to find out who attacked him and what led to the altercation. That's it for this episode of Sunrise. I'm Rick Flagg in Tallahassee, inviting you to join us again tomorrow as we plumb the depths of Florida politics.